Okay. Uh, this is Ben Forstenzer. I'm here with uh, Juliet Forstenzer Espinoza, who is my sister. Yes, hello. And the reason we're here together is because I had written a story last year, actually, um, about the process of my sister Julie here and my brother-in-law Yule adopting my niece, mm -hmm. who in the story is referred to as Alicia. And when people heard it, the thing that some of them really pointed out was that the story was really more um, Julie's story than it was my niece's story. Yes, and I, I think that's accurate. I think where my, me and my daughter and my husband are having a story, an intertwined story, a story that we're living together, but the story that you told was really the story of what was happening to me during the early days and the long road to finalizing adopting. So much has happened also since you wrote the story. Um, you know, the story got more complicated and more emotionally layered and much more the work of figuring out what is my daughter's story, I'll just keep calling her Alicia, Alicia's story, um, and making sure that Alicia's story is hers to tell and is a story that's about what's best for her. I keep separate from my story, which I have to, my emotions are pertinent to me and important to me, but I, I have to set them aside and really focus all the time on what's best for, for Alicia and what's going to be best for um, her making her way in the world. And I know there's a really big piece that I, th that I think you project forward, which is your daughter, a 16-year-old version of her daughter, a 20-year-old version That's of right. her daughter. That's right. Looking back on, on this process and being able to really start to put together her own story. My understanding of her story was one thing in the first days that we knew her, and it kept changing over time because of the actions of her birth family and the actions of the adoption agency. And every time that something shifted, I thought her, her story is now changing. And I, she doesn't know it today. She's five today, and she was three and a half the day she came to us. But she it's, it matters to me when I think that I'm... I, I'm the keeper of her narrative, and I, I need to share her narrative with her consistently throughout the course of her development and her life so she feels anchored in her story. And, and as it changed and in some ways became more heartbreaking even than it originally was, it was, it was, it was very hard because I want to protect her from it, but I also know she has the right and her, her psychological well-being and her dignity as a human demands honesty about it and it's made it even harder sometimes to process what's going on. Right. Definitely gotten more complex. A story that was already very complex got, got more complex. Got more complex. Alicia's Story by Ben Forstenzer. I ran into a professor in the cafeteria at law school. She asked if I'd spoken to my sister Julie. I hadn't. She suggested that I call her. I called Julie on the payphone. The payphone. This was 1999. Julie had been diagnosed with uterine cancer. She was 27. She cried and freaked out, and we all quickly tried to figure out what this would mean. 
or at least the first thing this would mean. It meant that two weeks later they took her uterus. You know, I think that getting sick young was, um, it was a crucible experience for me. I think that's the best way to phrase it. It changed my life permanently. It changed how I operated in the world. It took away my fertility. It closed certain doors forever. It exposed me to experiences and to people and to a universe of, um, you know, cancer patients and family members and survivors that changed my spiritual life. It changed my work life. It, it changed my perspective on how to live day to day. Um, it, it changed everything about me, but, um, you know, the core thing of, you know, my fertility going away connected directly to cancer is a is a singular grief that is going to be with me forever. It's and it's connected to knowing that I gave up my fertility so I could live my life and there's no way that you you want it the other way, you know. Well, right, I mean, right. It's not, there wasn't another you know, option. Well, right. right. There are people like, oh, I'm going to have a baby and then I'll die. You know, I'm not going to, you know, it's like people are crazy. Weird. But it's weird. But anyway, so my, the, the, the point is that you connect, in my mind, they're interrelated. My gratitude, my profound gratitude at having had a treatable, survivable cancer and, and my terrible grief at the cost of that being my fertility will always go hand in hand. And in the end, are connected inextricably to the process I I went through to become a parent because I became a parent in a way that other people don't become parents. Well, lots of people do become parents that way. They do become parents through adoption, and many because they're infertile or have fertility issues. But um, certainly, for me, certainly not most people. Right, but all right. I mean, a lot of people just kind of have sex and have babies. So, yes. or they buy sperm and then you know inject it into their partner with a turkey baster and have a baby. Or is it really turkey baster? They, it can happen. Um, but so here's the thing: <laughs> um, how how early in this process, in the process of getting sick and being sick, how early did adoption as now the path to family enter your brain? Do you remember when that happened? I do. It was very early because it was 1999. And so at the time there, you couldn't freeze eggs, right? Like, so the idea you couldn't freeze a woman's eggs and then just keep them for later. So you had to freeze a fertilized embryo. And I got diagnosed on March. I got diagnosed certifiably with cancer on March 11th, 1999 and needed surgery right away to avoid metastatic cancer, the spreading of the cancer so they were like, you have like two days, three days, if you want to like find sperm and then, you know, find $15,000 and have your eggs extracted. I mean, it was just not going to happen. And I wasn't that married to my own genetic material in terms of, you know, I had scoliosis, I'd been overweight, like, you know, I mean, I wasn't like freaking out that I wasn't going to pass on my biological matter. I knew I wanted to have kids, but so that wasn't an option. And then, um, you know, I remember some discussion of surrogacy and there were all those famous stories like the baby M story and all, you know, crazy stories about that. And it was all super creepy anyway. And 
So like I kind of knew almost instantaneously that if I was ever going to have kids, I was going to adopt. And there are a lot of, we have a lot of people in our family who are adopted first cousins, three first cousins are adopted. So, um, at the, um, so I just figured I, I'd, I'd have to, you know, figure out how that all worked at some point when I was ready. In 2009, when Julie married Yule, they asked for money for the adoption fund. They got a little bit. Eventually, there were home studies at Julie and Yule's place and childproofing, and then there was a list. Julie and Yule were on a very special list. The list for a child. It seems really far away, she said. It was all very theoretical. For 18 months, it was a seemingly endless regulatory nightmare, as though the MVA had come to your house to make you wait in line, like in your kitchen. There were papers to fill out and visits and money in accounts. Then the home study expired, so they needed another one. Above all, nothing felt like a pregnancy, because it wasn't. I just wanted a little bit of your insight because, yeah. again, I was, we've jumped many years. Yes. Because um, you got married in... I got married in 2009, six months, I think, no, three or four months right after Alicia was born. So she was already... She was already born. She was born. She was, she was just three, four months old. She was a little baby. She was a little baby when the day I married. I had no idea our paths were careening towards each other. Right. And that's 10 years from... Yeah, that was a full 10 years after getting sick. Um, yeah. That's amazing. So, like I said, I was, uh, I was sort of alongside it at best. I mean, you were living in Baltimore. I was yes. living in Baltimore. We live in Baltimore right now. Yes. Even. <laughs> so... Well, and we had put, you know, in our wedding invitation, a card that said in lieu of gifts, we'd like donations for an adoption fund because we had known from many friends who'd been through the process that it's very expensive and time consuming and, and we, you know, don't come from a wealthy family and, um, we want, we really knew that we wanted to start a family. So, and you still ended up with random glass bowls. Yes, we did <laughs> end up with a lot of, uh, you know, unsolicited gifts in lieu of, of the money, but, um, we got a, a good amount of money, enough money to pay for a lot of the things you need to pass a home study. One classic story is you need fire extinguishers in your laundry room and in your kitchen to um, be considered fit parents for a child. And we called it prepping for the fake baby because there was no baby, but I had to childproof the house. And it was heartbreaking. It was really hard to childproof a house for a baby that didn't exist, especially my nephew, our nephew, had you know, was recently born and, right, and they there was a real to, baby. And they didn't have to do it. They didn't have a stuff. fire extinguisher right. in their kitchen. Um, no one ever came to their no, house. No one came to their house. Yeah. They just kind of bought some sperm and had a baby. Um, but Which I, is also a complicated <laughs> process. No, no, not to undermine that the same sex I, I, couples having babies is no, anything. No, I get it. Um, but, anyway, but I bought a fire extinguisher. I was on the list of things to do. I brought it home and my husband said to me, Ooh, I don't think that's a A347. I don't think that's the right fire extinguisher. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? It's a fire extinguisher. And there was like a model on the list and that I hadn't seen. And I needed a fire extinguisher that was like four times the size of the one I bought. I just bought like a little home fire extinguisher. But no, I needed like 
a real deal fire extinguisher for my kitchen and my laundry room and like screw on lids for my garbage cans and I needed a you thermometer needed locks on all the cabinets locks on all the cabinets and uh, all the things for the f- fucking um the the electrical sockets all had to be closed up and yeah and we needed thermometers on the refrigerator um to be a certain temperature and we needed the hot water not to come out right. over so a certain temperature yes. and all of this stuff which is the whole point yeah is right. that it was and they, it was like this just other awful job i had on top of my regular job that right. felt very disconnected from having a child and then knowing just knowing that people without challenges to making a child yes just squeeze babies out they do I mean, lots of people yeah. have difficulty. No doubt. But then there's a whole bunch of people that just, they just have babies. They just babies. have babies, yeah. And nobody, and they're, they're never inspected. Are no, oh, and then there babies? was like the 10 or 12 hours of webinars on parenting and open adoption and the quizzes you had to take during them to prove you were actually listening. And there was the TB and HIV tests that we had to repeat twice, the criminal background checks from multiple states because I'd lived in Washington state, New York state and Maryland. Um, yeah. So there was a lot, it was a lot, seven pounds of paper, seven pounds of paper, seven pounds of paper FedEx in that period. Wow. Okay. Seven pounds of paper. But it was some kind of gestation because that whole time, another story was unfolding. She was born in 2009, the same year that Julie and Yul got married. The mother, Eileen, was pregnant at 15. Eileen would leave the baby at her mother's or with aunts, with people who would take care of her so Eileen could keep being a kid. Eileen had what her daughter grew to call business problems. Eventually, Eileen made a decision to give up her daughter, but... By then, she'd let the girl grow up into a vivacious and curious little child. A screecher and a jumper, a sponge for words and phrases. Somehow in all that, shuffling around from hand to hand, from house to house, town to town, and even state to state. Or maybe because of it. They had all raised a charmer. She was a perfectly suited kid to randomly show up in the middle of a crazy family of whacked-out Jews. How old was is Alicia's mother? Alicia's mother, when she gave birth to Alicia, was 20. So there was some confusion on some documents. There's conflicting dates. Yeah, we were initially told um, there was a date put on a... Yule, my husband, was sent to the vital records office in Baltimore City by the adoption agency with a form that had what we believed was the birth mother's birth date, which indicated she was almost 16 when Alicia was born. And actually, it turns out, we found out that was just an error, and she was actually 20 when Alicia was born. So she was 23 and a half when she gave Alicia up for adoption. Now, I mean, someday maybe we'll know her story. yeah. Because her story must be really complicated. I think... The little bits that we the know. The little bits we know are indicate a, a high level of complexity and difficulty between her and her mother, especially. Yeah. When you were looking at, when you were talking to, to mom, mm-hmm. watching Hope, 
probably watching Jen at that time. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about sort of... Well, we, there were two tracks, right? So at the, we got oh, we got approved for the home study. Um, this was in August of, I guess it was 2012. Um, we get finalized for the home study. And then we, we the second part of an adoption is you get approved for the home study and then you start looking for a child and you get... You don't have to ha use the same agency. You're looking for a placement. And so we were registering with all these placement agencies across the country. There was one like only for Jewish families, and there were ones in states that had shorter periods of consent, like um, where the mom only had three days to revoke their consent to adoption. You know, babies move faster. There's all so much weird, like, stuff in the adoption world that – I had ethical issues with going to like a state that didn't give a woman more than three days to change her mind. And, but that's where people were getting babies domestically. And like, so there was all of that, like getting on lists and knowing from our cousins, Michelle and John, and then those stories, they were both adopted and knowing like, you know, there was waiting, waiting, waiting. And then on Thursday, a baby falls from the sky and right. your parents overnight. It's very and fast. told that, that that's how it would happen. Like we'd wait and wait and it would be excruciating. And then we'd wake up on a Tuesday and we'd be parents, instant parents. We were thinking, we, we were prepared to be instant parents to, to an infant. That's what we thought was coming because we went to an agency. I had said to Yule, you know, I want to go through the foster system and adopt, maybe adopt some older siblings. And he said, well, why don't we try for a baby first? And we can then also do that. And we went to an agency that had only ever placed babies and thought we were getting a baby. Um, and so wow. we so were, your mindset was an infant. Your coming. mindset was an infant. An infant at some point with no warning. That's right. what we were preparing for. Okay. And that's not what happened. That's not at all what occurred. It was a Monday in January, chilly, not cold. Julian Yule drove to the agency where they met Alicia and her backpack. Eileen signed the papers and Julian Yule drove off with a three and a half year old who was just as shocked as her new parents were that they were all in the car together. Yes, there was an everyday kind of quality. Alicia had been handed off to yet another set of hands, but at the same time, the kid knew something was going on. We were set to meet them at the Target in Pikesville. Me and Renee got there first. We waited by the bathrooms for Julian Yule to appear with this tiny, suddenly very important stranger. Renee and I, along with Julian Yule, we were a motley crew. Yule is a big man, big, like tall and strong and barrel-like. Yule loves comic books, and I like to say that he is a superhero and his superpower is big. So at the Target, we were Big Yule and tiny little Alicia and anxious Julie and Renee and myself and just trying to absorb the full weight and oddness of it all, constantly wondering what we all looked like through the eyes of those people around us. What do you do with a three-and-a-half-year-old you've never met before when now she's supposed to be your daughter or niece? You eat pizza. And during the awkward silences around that pizza, we did a lot of nose booping. Nose booping is not actually a game, but it is an activity. What happens is you touch someone's nose and go boop. It was a good way to break the ice. We booped for a while. 
After pizza and booping, we did a first shop with Alicia. She had been dropped off with a backpack. The backpack had some pull-up diapers, a box of raisins, an Android tablet, and maybe an extra shirt. That was it. The kid did not come with accessories. So we bought some clothes and bedding and a toothbrush. We went back to Julian Yule's house and put Alicia into her pajamas. And we made up the bed with the brand new Door of the Explorer bed set, and we acted like it was a normal thing. You know, another Monday, another strange child appears in the house. Once she was ready for bed, we took a picture of Julie, Yule, and Alicia together. The least scared person in the picture was Alicia. She mugged and giggled. Then we watched them put Alicia to bed for the first time in her new home. So that was that was a momentous. Yeah, um, and and I, I guess what's important to note is that you know we we did get the call out of the blue. We got a call a week prior saying that a birth mom wanted to interview us, and that it was an older child. And we had a call with birth mom, um, you and I, and the agency and the birth mom. It was very bizarre. She asked us what kind of food we ate, and she asked Yule about his art. She had heard he was an artist. At last, about 10 minutes, we said, you know, are you ill? Like, is, why are you... Right, you were trying to understand. We were like, this is a three-and-a-half-year-old child. We weren't even sure if it was a boy or a girl. We were like, we don't. We thought maybe she was sick or her fam- someone in her family was sick. or We didn't understand how you gave up a child of that age... We didn't know if the child was maybe not healthy or had a developmental problem or you didn't know, any we didn't know anything except that she'd been with the birth family and she was three and a half. And then by the end of the call, we knew it was a girl. So we were kind of confused and we spoke to her briefly and then we waited for four days, you know, freaking out and then got a call that fr- Friday to come to a Barnes and Noble on Sunday um, and meet. Um, birth mom and Alicia with the agency guy, um, which we did. He told us to go to the Trader Joe's and get a snack for the kid. Which Barnes and Nobles? This was in Towson. Okay. So we went a little early. Not that it matters. And we, uh, we we got her fruit chews and we were, we were freaking out. We went to this Barnes and Noble and sat in the kids section on those little chairs, Yule, who's six foot three and 350 pounds on this little tiny chair waiting for them. And then we have pictures of Yule and, and Alicia playing among the fake trees in the Barnes and Noble kids section. Like within the first like, 15 minutes. Yeah. While, you know, the agency guy went off to talk to birth mom, we hung out with Alicia. They just left her with us. And we read her The Cat in the Hat and Ants. We didn't know there was such a book, but we read it to her. And, you know, she was just a very joyful child. And then we were left with Birth Mom, who was going to interview us and basically started telling us her schedule. Like, well, Alicia takes a bath on these days and she doesn't like tomatoes. And, you know, and, you know, let's do this thing. How do we do this thing? We were like, uh, we have no idea what goes on now. And so... And then she left with Alicia and the agency guy said, go get a car seat and meet me at the agency tomorrow. 
Oh my God. Yeah. And that's that. So it was Tuesday phone call, Friday meet us at the Barnes and Noble, Sunday, 15, 20 minutes all together at the Barnes and Noble. And then, okay, come to my agency with a check for almost (laughs) $20,000 Monday and the car seat. And Tuesday, (laughs) Tuesday phone call. Yeah. And this was this Martin Luther King Day? Monday was the Monday Martin Luther was King. Martin the pickup day was Martin Luther King Day. And so it's yeah. six days yeah, from, from this is phone, not theoretical, it's real. Right. To there's a child, there's a child in my in car. Your possession. Yeah. So and then Monday we went, you know, we went to buy the car seat. We're like, this can't be real. They're gonna call any minute and tell us this isn't real. We went and got the certified check. This can't be real, this can't be real. And we went to the agency and there they were and they left Alicia with us outside. It was like unusually warm for January 21st in Baltimore. And we played outside with a Frisbee for 45 minutes while birth mom was inside the agency doing paperwork. And then she came out and said goodbye to Alicia and handed us her backpack, which had three boxes of raisins and a pull-up diaper and a very expensive computer tab. And she said goodbye and she didn't... She wasn't crying. We all started crying, but uh, birth mom didn't cry, and and um, Alicia was didn't cry at all, and she walked away, and we were all crying because it was so overwhelming, and we just didn't understand. And I turned to Yule and I said, "That woman isn't giving up her kid for adoption. She's going to Vegas with her friend." It seemed right there that the gravity of the situation was lost, right? Or she was just so dissociated from what she was doing, or it was too much, but. And then we opened the backpack, and we were completely just like, what is happening right now? Like, there's not a pajama set. There's not a toothbrush. There's nothing to indicate she's even on a sleepover. Right. It's not like, even what you'd leave on a sleepover. It's not even what you leave on a sleepover. It's like for a long It's picnic. like, yeah, it's not even a picnic. Right. You know. An outing. And, you know, and Alicia, you know, she uh, she was really hungry, and she... Um, and she had this herniated belly button and that we didn't know about. And so like that, you know, gave her like her tummy, this weird physical shape that we weren't aware of. And so it was just, the whole thing was so bizarre, but, and she was so willing to just come with us. That was, I think what she had no stranger danger, you know, at all. And yes, um, I remember that as a, as a characteristic in her first couple of months, if not the first year. Yeah. That sh- that it sh- developed slowly yeah. as we became, as she fully attached to us as her family, her stranger, her normal stranger danger that most kids have came, um, surfaced, which is healthy. Right. It was absent. Uh, it was totally up. absent. And, um, and I called you and I was tweaked and, you know, I was like, meet, meet, you got to meet us. Yeah. I can't do this. Right. Yeah. And we went to the target. <laughs> we went to the target. The next few days spun with activity. My folks came back from vacation to this new potential granddaughter, and Alicia had to deal with meeting these two serious altacacas. Daycare and preferred foods were quickly figured out. We learned that Alicia could sleep through the night, but it also became clear that she knew something profound was going on. She began waking in the night and crying, not crying out, just crying to herself. And sometimes when Julian Yule would put her to bed, Alicia would become very sad and say, 
I lost my mommy. And she would say it over and over again. When she asked where her mommy was, she would be told that her mother had, quote, grown-up problems. Then, after she asked the same question several times, someone said her mommy had grown-up business. And that's why she wasn't around. In Alicia's brain, that became business problems. Her mom had business problems, and that's why Alicia was living in this strange new house. But the kid was a tornado, and she was so used to being passed around that she bonded very quickly to Julian Yule. She sang songs with us on Shabbat and took to calling Julian Yule Ima and Abba, which is mom and dad in Hebrew. In Maryland, a parent who willfully gives up parental rights has 30 days to think better of it, 30 days to change their mind, 30 days to undo the seemingly permanent done of giving up a kid and letting strangers who ache to love a child hold that child and consider a future with her, to buy a pair of incredibly cute Mary Janes for her, and then to have it all disappear. That month chugged along. The last day for Eileen to turn back was on a Wednesday. We were told that the last moment for her to decide to take Alicia back was Wednesday at midnight. And the previous Friday, there was a stir from the adoption agency guy named Robert. He always put Julie on edge, and he always said the wrong thing, and there he was on the phone saying that Eileen had called him and asked him some questions. The whole house went into bad scene mode. Also, everyone got that cold that was going around at the same time. Julie had some kind of hacking cough she couldn't stop. A countdown had begun. It had started when Robert called about Eileen asking questions, and it was set to end at midnight on Wednesday, and that was five days away. Heavy clock watching began. Any call from Robert was endlessly interpreted, and any news of Eileen's mindset that could be gleaned from Robert's words was poured over on Skype with my other sister Hope in Vancouver. There was speculation imaginary stories built on a word or a question asked. Eileen asked, will I get her stuff back? Does that mean all she cares about is the stuff? Does that mean she definitely wants Alicia back? Or is that just a question because the whole adoption thing is so totally weird and she isn't sure what happens if she changes her mind? We wondered, did the grandmother say she was suddenly willing to take Alicia or that she wanted Eileen to take Alicia because we knew no grandparents had wanted Alicia three and a half weeks ago, but maybe they had changed their minds. There was talk about participation in a family reunion somewhere in the South, how Robert had indicated without asking Julie that Julie and Yule might be willing to bring Alicia down there, which wasn't really true. And there were dark endless caves of self-loathing and self-questioning as Julie went back to the moments and days around her cancer because without cancer, there's no need for a 30-day waiting period as though the child were a handgun or a mortgage or a commercial driver's license because people who don't get that kind of cancer, kids, fools, people who don't even like children, they could have babies whenever they wanted to, no questions asked. But Julie's house had to be inspected, and she needed to show that she had money in the bank, and people would have to look at her closely 
and judge her up down and middle and in the end the state of maryland just another state really not like an expert on child rearing could decide if she might be a worthy parent but only because of the cancer so i guess what we know now is that you know when we asked the birth mom if she had disclosed to her family that she was giving alicia up for adoption she had told us yes and it turned out that that was not true she had she told. had not told her own mother and her own mother found out that Friday. Um, I'm sorry. Wait. Yeah. So her own... So... Alicia's grandmother... Did not know. That her daughter had given up her granddaughter for adoption. That whole time. And so Monday comes, four days later, this grandmother finds out, like, you did what with my granddaughter? Well, it's like three and a half weeks later. Right. We're she five days away from the 30-day period of oh, revocation. It and wasn't they, that Friday. You're not saying the Friday of the Monday. of No, we're of, saying when we got the call from the agency. That was the day that the grandmother it, found out. It was out. like that week. like the Yeah. Because so the grandmother the, lives in another state. The grandmother state. lived in Jersey. Um, and so, and, and what happened was about, I guess, two or three days after... Alicia came to us. We got a call from the agency to come pick up a couple boxes from Birth Mom, which were filled with the weirdest stuff, like weird stuff, like hand-me-downs for seven- and eight-year-old kids and, like, Princess Tiana party cups, like not some baby clothes, like nothing useful. But that was the stuff that she was referring to. How would she get those boxes back? And we hadn't even touched those boxes because there was – Nothing, Nothing in useful. them we could use. So, so again, you know, I have to say, it makes a lot of stuff make sense in a whole different way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and in the and and grandma, grandma did not does not still to this day does not want to raise Alicia. Grandma desperately, desperately wants birth mom to raise Alicia, and birth mom does not want to. Birth mom would love to have us raise Alicia and come to our house five or six times a month and stay mommy to her daughter without having to parent her, stay with her, stay at home with her, pay for her, love her, care for her, all the joys and responsibilities of parenthood. She wants to stay, but... She wants to be auntie mom. She wants mom. to be auntie mom. Who, you know... And I get it. People, you know, would love... A lot of people would love that, I think. But uh, anyway, so, so a lot... Well, there's still a lot. We know a lot more now than we did then. And and it's absolutely true that, you know, I'm so bonded to my daughter now. I mean, our attachment is so complete. But this was only three weeks or so in. Right. And, you know, and I, I was falling in love with her and I was wary of my attachment to her. And my focus, like I said at the beginning when we first started talking tonight, was it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how afraid I am. And Yule and I would talk about this. Like our fear about losing her doesn't matter. We have to act as if we are not going to lose her for her sake. We have to make right. this her home. You can't start acting You can't be half babysitter right. mode. You have to be reassuring 24-7. You have to be... I am your forever mommy. We were very careful about our language in the first month or so before the, the revocation period ended about talking about permanency, but we had to be very much like, you know, 
you know, just like all the things we are all the time now, but just from the moment we uh, took custody of her, just completely loving and, you know, very, very open to meeting her every need and, and very attuned to her emotions in a way that only parents are to their children. You can't do that in half measures, right. even when you're afraid that it's not permanent. That's such a difficult situation to be in. It is hard, Because yeah. especially for those five days, she still needed... It's not like you could you couldn't switch modes, couldn't take her to yet a third location. No, no. You had to be around her. And and a regular non outlier adoption when there's an infant involved, you don't the infant doesn't come to you for those thirty days. The infant goes to a thing called cradle care. So birth mom gives the baby up for adoption, the infant goes to a cradle care situation that you, you pay for. That is like a foster home. Right, and then there's no bonding No, issue. there's no bonding. When the th day 31 happens, you get the baby. The baby's parental rights are terminated for that baby, and the baby's yours. And they could have done that. I the, don't know if the law... They, it turns out they should have done it differently than they did. Right. But it, this agency had never done an older child adoption before. So they, they kind of fumbled in a lot of ways. Not legally fumbled, but just processed logistically. logistically. And, and it's true. I mean, I think for me... And this is why, in the end, this story became more about me than about Alicia at the time, is because it's true. I was overwhelmed with terror that she was going to go back, and um, and I and I was I was really overwhelmed with the feeling of my of my grief coming up around my my path to parenthood and how how difficult it was turning out to be and and I was afraid I was afraid of what I would suffer if if, uh, if she was she, if the revocation if happened. the revocation happened it was terrifying and it did you know and instead of it was very hard to keep that at bay and just kind of ride it out instead I kind of sunk into what it might be like and um how did you um that was hard. How did you get through that? Um, I don't, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I, I remember s spending a lot of time. I, I couldn't work. You know, there was about five days in there. I had to get people to cover the classes I was teaching and I couldn't work. I, I focused a lot on parenting and on making sure like it was my first crash course in keeping my emotional energy separate from my parenting energy, which was good practice because we had no time. I mean, you get an infant, whether you get an infant through adoption or you have a baby, you have all this time when you, the kid doesn't speak your English, you know, you don't, you know, the, you can, you can like smile and say mean things to your spouse and, you know, like, oh, <laughs> you, you can, can have all sorts of talk about anything you want. you want. You can curse like a crazy person. You can, you can act inappropriately because they're not sentient. They don't have a developed frontal lobe, you know, but this is like a three and a half year old, incredibly articulate, super deep scan, perceptive child you can't, it understands every single thing being said, every yes. energy shift she's completely attuned to. Yes. And it was just like the, just the focus of like trying to make her feel safe and not letting her kind of know the level of, of agita and, you know, pain was hard. After that first phone call, we got 
probably 10 phone calls over five days. And, um, you know, Yule was weeping in the bathroom at one point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just heart-wrenching. And then we just kind of make her pancakes. And I think the course of this entire process, which has just now come to a, this first phase of its conclusion, has been an incredible, humbling experience, an exercise in humility, saying, you know, in many, many instances, my grief, my feelings, the things that this triggers in me, which are real for me and very difficult for me, they're not the most salient issue right now. What's, what I, are, they, are they going to be set aside, dealt with and processed with my friends, with my spouse, with my siblings, with my parents, but they have nothing to do with the choice I have to make now for my child. What I need to do for my child is not a, is not driven by how I feel. It's driven what I believe intuitively is going to be best for my child, and that is a humbling, humbling experience. And this was a serious... And this was early on. It was like early. A, just a huge dose of it. Yeah, it a was... A dose of it that almost... That was almost it was, that almost killed the patient. It, yeah, it was very, 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 very challenging. I came by Julie's house after work on Wednesday, and we hunkered down. Everyone seemed like they'd been hit in the head with a stick. We heard that Eileen and her mother, both of whom were supposed to be in New Jersey that day, had appeared at the adoption agency that morning. We picked over every detail that Robert told Julie, how Eileen and her mother had fought at the adoption agency, how Eileen's mother, Shirlene, the grandmother, wanted Alicia back, how she said she would take care of Alicia until Eileen was ready, but Eileen didn't want that, and she said so. And then Shirlene, the grandmother, turned to Robert and said that she wanted the child, and how Robert said, you have no say in what happens to the child. It's up to Eileen. And somehow, at least so far, at least at 6 o'clock, as the charming little tornado jumped up and down on me and called me Tio Ben, at least so far, Eileen had managed to hold fast. My mom watched as each call from Robert left Julie battered and flashing back to phone calls with oncologists, calls to schedule surgeries, calls that held the future in their little packs of electrons buzzing down the line. There'd been a request made by Eileen to Skype with Alicia. It was supposed to have happened the night before, but then she hadn't called. Now there was a fresh request for an 8 o'clock Skype call. On that very Wednesday night, Robert said no. He said that it could be done the next night. They put Alicia to bed. And we all took deep breaths and we watched each other. Julie coughed endlessly like her throat and lungs had to keep reminding her to stay uncomfortable. At one point, Julie turned to me and said, you don't have to stay up with me and wait. My mother and I both tried to explain, but this is it. This is what we do. This is the whole point of family. This thing where we sit together and wait and freak out and together we see what the hell is going to happen in our lives. And of course, on top of all that, we were all starting to love the girl. At 11.50, Robert sent a text saying, well, that's that. Good night. But it was only 11.50. And we'd been told that if Eileen called to revoke up to midnight, that Robert would have to respect that and go to the courthouse the next morning. The clock crept forward. There was a little stir as midnight approached. Texts from friends started flowing in and then calls and then it was done. 
We hugged. Sleep was possible again. Julie was so exhausted. She didn't seem happy. But after getting your ass kicked, you aren't happy when the beating's over. You're simply ready to clean up and get on with the healing. Which both her and Alicia did. I, I mean, I remember very much like you tell it. I remember us all sitting there. I remember checking the clock, checking the clock. Um, I felt relief when um, we finally put Alicia to, to bed and she was sleeping peacefully. It, it was somehow less torturous than having her in my presence while I waited. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a good friend said to me, the joy of uh, your daughter having a secure and permanent family who puts her first is that she doesn't know that your terrible Tuesday was a terrible Tuesday. It's just a Tuesday for She's her. She's shielded. Yeah, and so it was a relief for her to go to bed. And, and um, yeah, and I remember feeling just like surrounded by people who loved me and, you know, bolstering. It felt very similar to, uh, you know, and this is how it connected me right back and put me so much in the space that I was in in 1999 and 2000 right after getting sick, which it felt like waiting for CAT scan results. You know, it felt like that waiting that went on between getting scanned and being told you're not sick. You made it through another three months and you're not sick. And it was that waiting. And I did a lot of that waiting with all of you. And it felt similar, like I'm going to wait and something's going to happen that's going to alter my life in a way that I don't know if I can weather or it's not going to happen. And I'm going to have something much more joyful happen instead. And sitting in that space is a hard, hard space to sit in. But, you know, you're right. It, it was um, much more manageable to sit there with my family um, and with friends around the country, you know, supporting me and saying rosaries for me and sending me good energy and, and all of that stuff. And, um, but it was, it was, it was sitting on, and it's a very, it's like a sitting at the edge of a, a, a cliff or something. You're just, you know, waiting, um, to see part of me was so, um, preoccupied with this other family, right. And what was going on for them and who, yeah. who were they and what, what went on that you could just abandon a child on a sidewalk with a box of raisins and then lie about your situation so extensively, um, to their, to us and, and what was going on now with this this clear battle between the grandma and the birth mom. And then we had our mom sitting there who was a new grandma herself and who would right. never, I mean, what would she experience if our nephew had disappeared one day? And, you know, it was all of this like compassion and worry for them and also anger at them. So it was very complicated stuff. Um, it's this a very unusual situation. It's and that's what's made it so hard to get counsel around or, or find a community around is that older children who are up for adoption are not generally with their birth families and they're in the foster system. Right. And so this is a very outlier situation where you have a child who was with their birth family until a, the moment of giving up for adoption in the private adoption universe, not the foster system state adoption universe and in the end um 
you know, it's the whole thing seemed completely batshit crazy that, you know, this person, you know, this person in the form of Alicia's mother, who I, on the, on the one hand with this birth mother, I have profound gratitude for her because she created my daughter. And, um, on the other hand, I have profound anger at her for inflicting harm and injury on this child who I now have come to really love and feel like this, like I am responsible for protecting from harm in this world. And, and I'm helping recover from this trauma of being abandoned. What did you think was on the other side if you had lost her at that point? Um, you know, I think, I think I was pretty sure that I would be spending a long time into the future mourning my loss, you know, and the possibility of my life as Alicia's mother, the specificity of this child after so long preparing for a hypothetical child and having the specificity of this person taken away was overwhelming to me. And I just imagined that it would be a long time for me to grieve. And I, and I think I would, I imagined I would be afraid for her and scared for her. Part of me thought, what if they changed their mind again? Would I be willing to do this again? You know, so I didn't know, but, um, it didn't, I didn't know. I didn't, I knew it wasn't going to be good. And I remember, uh, when I first got diagnosed with cancer, um, I was sitting, I had a therapist. I was in living in New York city. I was on the upper West side and I went and I sat down at her office and I just gotten kind of the full picture from the surgeon and was going into surgery, I think in like two days. And I said, you know, I, I'm going to survive this, but I don't, I don't want to go through it. I don't want to do it. And I don't have a choice. And I have it's the worst feeling in the world to have to go face this awful thing I don't want to do and I have to do it or, um, there's not an option Well, death I, or death, right. It wasn't not, an option. Right. right. And so that's what this felt like in my mind for me, it was just, it was going to be this awful thing. And I imagined packing up her things and dr the drive. I mean, I'd gone in my mind, the drive back to the agency. I mean, it was just, I just didn't see how I was going to survive it, but I knew that I had to, and I, I would, I would just take whatever the next step was. But what I was imagining was, was really brutal and it was so terrifying. And so yeah. how about, how did the relief, I mean, there was a sense of relief. There when did you start was. feeling the relief? You know, like I was, I was really, really sick. I had bronchitis and I hadn't slept at that point for multiple days. So I think it was the next morning. I think I'd slept a bit and we, I was, I, I understood that, you know, that, that this, the, the terrifying piece of this was, was over. And it probably took about four or five days, you know, to, for that, that really kind of clenched energy to dissipate. But I, I remember about 10 minutes after 12, looking around and looking at you and, having hope on the phone and looking at mom and dad and, and Yule and thinking, you know, like, like I, we made it and here we are and whatever's next is, can't be worse than this. Like this was kind of our first test and we did okay. 
And, okay, speaking yeah. of what's next. Yeah, the child has to be in your custody with the oversight of an agency for six months. Um, and you have to jump through a bunch of, like, post-placement evaluations. There's three of them with interviews and questionnaires. And, and then there's then you have to get, you know, go to court. So... And that's and that all. That's where where we ended up. Then one day in August, I took off work in the morning and drove up to Towson with Renee to the circuit courthouse. Through crowded and stress-filled halls, we found our courtroom and met Mom and Dad, Julian, Yule, and Alicia, packed into a courtroom that had way more babies than the average courtroom. There were at least three babies in the jury box alone bouncing on their soon-to-be official mothers and fathers' laps. And there was little Tornado, turned around in her seat to look at an infant behind her, squealing and talking. The lawyer told us that the judges take their time with these cases because their whole day is filled with ugliness, and this is the one nice thing they get to do. Our name was called, and we went back into chambers. We took seats. Papers and files were opened and shuffled. It was quick. It was fast. It was a sentence, a very official sentence and a signature, a very special signature. Then a smile from an old guy in a black robe. Julie was crying. Mom was crying. And Julie and Alicia shared a last name. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's what's amazing is I think it's like, it took about four or five months for us to get we get you get a new birth certificate after an adoption is finalized, and I have ambivalence about it. But um, the whole purpose is, I guess, you know, everyone's privacy. But you get a birth certificate with your child's name, her new name, um, and her first name stayed the same, and her birth, first name remained her given name at birth. But we changed her middle name and her last name, and um, and our names go on the birth certificate. As, though, as, you, as though, though you were the birth parents. Right. Under the law, it's as if we are her, her birth parents. And our names and our ages at the time of her birth <laughs> are on the birth certificate. <laughs> we didn't even know her. Right. But there's our names and there's her name, her new legal name on a birth certificate. She's going to use that birth certificate for the rest of her life. For right. every time she needs a vital record for a passport or whatever you need your birth certificate for, it's going to say her full name and uh, there I'll be as, as her mother. Which is as, odd. As though, as, you, though, as though you were there at the time. There are two spots, right? There's not like a spot for birth mom and a spot for me, a forever mom. There's just me. And it, that was weird. And um, and then we were very nervous because she was three and a half. She knew her full name. She had a knock-knock joke about her full name. Knock-knock, who's there? Alicia, Alicia who? Alicia, here's my birth name. You know, right. like, with my middle name right, and my the real last name. middle name, my given middle name and last name. And so we said to her, you know... Alicia, we're, you know, your name's going to change now. Like your, your first name's going to be Alicia, but your middle name's going to be, you know, named after, you know, you know, my, you know, grand, uh, my grand, my great grandparents and your last name's going to be the same as me and daddy's. And, you know, and we were afraid she'd be upset about that. And instead she was just so excited and she was just running, skipping all around, you know, saying, saying her, her full name. name, her full name. She loved loved that it was going to match our name and um you know she was just really joyful about it and um and th that was pretty incredible 
you know, there, there are these moments on a daily basis, sometimes a few times a week. There are just moments where, you know, it's so completely clear that she feels safe, that she's thriving, that she absolutely trusts in our permanency as her parents um, that bring me a huge amount of joy. And, you know, where, you know, she has a thing she does where she, you know, she just did the other day, like after like we do a bath and I've done her hair and like she'll put her arms around my neck and she'll be like, you know, I love you, mommy. I love you a million times. And then I'll say, I love you more. I love you a trillion times. And then she says, I have no idea where she even learned it. She says, well, I love you infinity. <laughs> and so we, you know, and, and I just, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, sitting with her while she falls asleep or doing her hair or making her lunch. And I just cry. I just cry with joy and with complete, like my heart cracked open love for her. I'm changed because of being her mother and her mother, particularly her mother, not a mother, but her mother and, and being in her story with her and having her in my story with me. And it's, it, you know, all of the difficulties that have come with it. And I'm sure that that are in store for us as we grow up as a Jewish, African-American, Puerto Rican family in the United States, you know, with our own whatever um, and the complexities of an adoption story. It doesn't matter because, you know, I love her more than I have ever loved any living creature. And I... Um, and I see her thriving and it's so gratifying and, you know, I made a family and, um, I watched her become part of my existing family and, you know, it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's worth whatever has gone on and it's worth whatever will go on. Um, and I, my, my friend said to me, who's the parent of, you know, some teenage kids, she said, you know, Alicia, she's just such a person, you know, like at four years old, she's just like a fully formed, like full on personality. She's complicated and she's intelligent and articulate and she's perceptive and she's a old beyond her years and she's goofy and she's musical. And, you know, I mean, she's, she's just, um, you know, she's made my story a happier story. So it's all good. Yeah. So, well, thank you for uh, thank you for filling in the gaps. Yeah, I think and really making it because it is it is Julie's story. Yeah. And thank you I, for writing it because it's something I'll share with Alicia down the road to explain who I was when we met. And then you know, no matter what else happens, she'll also have this, which I think one thing is about um, Alicia really understanding her story. Now her story is actually about your story. Your story well, I guess actually went, is her story. Yeah, it's so one part of it. It yeah. is one part of it. Yeah. So hopefully she'll get to use that too. I hope so. Thank right. you, Ben. Thanks. Okay. <laughs>